ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. I don't know the name of the song, but everybody knows the beat when they see it with NWA stuff. Yeah, don't, 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 Well, hello everyone. You're listening to Where the Big Boys Play. I'm here with Brian and Chad uh, for Starcade '86. Say hello, fellas. Hello, How's fellas. Going, everybody. <laughs> um, now, as you, Brian, uh, say a few words for us. Uh, towards the end of last uh, last week's show, you were a little bit croaky. <laughs> um, what's happened to you in the past week? Well, I basically had hell on earth happen to me, and uh, got pretty pretty sick over the last week, and I'm finally. Getting out of the hole now, but still not not a hundred percent back yet. My whole family here has been sick. My wife and kid too. So it's been like a it's like, uh, not a mental ward. It's been like a sick ward in here. Yeah, but you know, you've you've got this husky voice now. Maybe some of our female uh, listeners, uh, you know, may find this a little bit sexy. Maybe, maybe. Good good luck. As if we've got female listeners. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, so. Starcade '86 uh, still happening in November. Starcade is still, still a Thanksgiving show, and just like last year, is coming from Atlanta and from the Omni. Uh, sorry, from uh, the Omni in Atlanta and from the Greensboro Coliseum. Um, the only change they've got this year is that they've got two different announced teams. Um, before we get into that, a little bit of a word on Magnum TA, because uh, we're not going to see him anymore in the ring, unfortunately. Yeah, so it's a shame too because this is the show of all shows that really gets completely turned around if you if you kind of look at what was going on as they led into it. But uh, so on October fifteenth, he was in a bad bad car accident. He wasn't speeding or anything. He was just driving home and uh, on his way from a bar actually in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, his sixth spot on the road and just drilled his car into a tree, I believe, and rolled it over. And I uh, was pretty pretty badly injured. I think they initially put him on life support. Um, they they got him out. Obviously, he he recovered mostly. But if you've ever seen him ever since, his uh, I think his right arm's been pretty useless ever since then. So he, he was never going to get back in the ring again. I know when it initially happened on television, they they were talking about how uh, like oh, two weeks afterward they were on TV saying, "Oh, Magnum's getting better quickly." And you know, I don't know if they're doing that to keep people thinking, "Oh, maybe there's a chance," or if his recovery was getting better, and then eventually just stopped to a point they were like, oh, this this isn't going to work. And obviously, it's a you know, great personal shame for him, but also business-wise for Crockett, um, it, that's got to be a big blow. It's like losing, a, you know, they were building, they were clearly building Magnum as the ace of this company, and um, just as he, I mean, he would have definitely got a world title push in uh, 87, right? Oh, you, you got, I mean, you figure he definitely would. I know a lot of people... The, the, the rumor's been that the, this was the night that he was going to fight um, Flair for the title, but uh, as we take a look at this today and through some of the television, like it didn't look that way that he was going to fight Flair here, but you could definitely tell they were they were positioning him to, to become the man in 1987, yeah. Yeah. And uh, d- Chad, just, just a couple of words on uh, Magnum as a worker, because we've, we've kind of seen you know all of what we're going to see from him. Any, any thoughts on uh, where his kind of value lies? Do you think um, I mean, I I think 
again, it's sort of unfortunate that with Magnum, with the car accident, I think we was really starting to see him, you know, really come into his own as a worker and as an overall performer with the Tully feud and then with the Nikita feud. Uh, so I, I could honestly see him if he kept advancing and got a successful world title run being one of the, uh, the best, you know, kind of super heavyweight baby faces, uh, remembered very fondly, uh, because he was getting a lot better on the microphone and in the ring. Um, you know, I would say he was definitely a good worker for, uh, 85 and 86. Yeah. No, I, I'd, 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 I'd agree with that. Um, and uh, th- th- here's a, here's a kind of hypothetical what if. Do you think do you think that if he'd have had this run in '87 that he would have? Uh, nobody really ever thinks about this, but do you think he would have en- eventually ended up up north? Would he have gone to WF? Uh, I think I think almost definitely. I mean, at that point, uh, again, I'm thinking of this from the way things really went in '87. I mean, if he gets up there in, in 87 and Crockett land and takes over, does Jim Crockett even end up having to sell his company? You know, it, it's one of those things. But on the same token, it could also be, you know, he gets the title and it goes to his head. He puts on shitty matches and he's not remembered. I, I kind of look at a lot of these and I don't know if you guys agree or not, but the, the, the Jim Morrison or the, like the, uh, the Kirk Cobain thing, like the, they, they didn't, we don't know how far they could have gone, so we, we kind of glamorize it as how far it could have been. Yeah. Uh, when in reality, a lot of times, it could have been not good at all. Yeah, I, I, I can understand that. And also, the other thing to remember, and uh, sorry to trivialize this, but uh, at some point, that mustache would have gone out of fashion. And, uh, you know, cause he was his gimmick, the Magnum... Uh, the Magnum uh, uh, TA gimmick was basically based on Magnum PI, right? Which oh, definitely, 100%. So, so he would have had to have some sort of gimmick change at some point. Well, I don't think Tom Selleck's ever really shaved his mustache. Maybe a couple times, but it's always coming back, so maybe not. Well, I know Scott Hall had one of those big uh, mustaches at this point as well. Oh, yes, he did. Um, all right, so let's get into Starcade 86 then. Our first match is, um, and we should explain, there's a few different versions of this show out there. We're doing the big three-hour version, but... Um, yeah, there's a few different versions, right, Brian? Yeah, there, there's the, um, the the original Turner release, which is like a 90-minute clipped version. It's in the black case that I know a lot of times, if you remember watching television uh, back then, that uh, Ric Flair would do the commercial. they talk about the, the, the matches, but it was clipped up, and the matches are all out of order. They put another version out that added one more match, which is the strap match we'll get to here. There's this version, which is actually the three-hour uh, New Zealand version. Uh, came from there and has the entire, pretty much the entire show on it. I think there's one match clipped on this version that's not clipped on the other one. I don't know why they did all that. And then there's, of course, the, the, also the, the big four hour Best of Starcade 83 to 87 that actually has two of the matches on here and their entirety on that match as well. So you, you'd have to work to get the whole show complete, but it's out there. Couldn't help but notice that there's no interviews on this show. Is, uh, did any of those other versions have interviews on them? You know? No, I didn't. I didn't see any of them do it either. And like I said, this is the most complete version. I've always wondered. I've never seen the closed circuit version, and to wonder if they were really there or not. Strange uh, that there's no interviews on the show because um, the other Starcade so far, you know, had quite a lot. Of, you know, we saw in Starcade '83 when they kept on going back to the locker rooms of race and 
flair and whatnot, where we were saying that, like, you know, a good portion of the show is uh, was promos, but uh, here we got none. So It's strange, it's strange too, that uh, WWE, you know, online or 24-7 or Classics on Demand hasn't put this out yet, because 85, 87, and 88 have all been shown, and 84, have, actually 83, too, have all been shown in their entirety on there, and they kind of skipped this one, and I'm not sure why. So, um, we start out in, I think it's uh, Atlanta to start off with, we're in the Omni, and um, it's double duty for Tony Schiavone tonight, because he's the ring announcer and the play-by-play guy. Um, what do we think of Tony Schiavone, the ring announcer? He's <laughs> serviceable? Uh, serviceable, that's as far as I would go. Yeah, he was, don't give up the day job, Tony, I mean, he, he was alright. Um, and for some reason, he is not with David Crockett, who for some reason can't get a break on Starcade. Uh, still no David Crockett. Um, he's actually with a chap called Rick Stewart. And I had to look up this guy because I didn't know who he was. But apparently he was the announcer for Central States Wrestling. Yep. Yes. He, he. If you've ever heard any of the shoot interviews with uh, one of the like uh, territorial bookers walked around named Buck Robley. Yeah. Uh, he he just loved Rick Stewart. Thought he was going to be the next big thing, but he also would end up dying really young. So yeah, well, well JCP JCP bought out this Central States territory, and uh, kind of Stewart came with a package. Um, but I, I found a I found a couple of stories that he died in 1989 of AIDS, and was actually one yeah. of the few uh, kind of openly gay men in wrestling, which is interesting. I don't know if he was openly gay, but he was definitely gay. So. Um, there's not too many, really, are there? There's not too many kind of gay men, especially at this time. Oh no! I mean, you might have had what the uh, the the Adrian Street gimmick going around, but that's the only one I can really think of that had any effeminate qualities to it at this time, especially in '86. Um, so Jimmy Garvin comes out to sharp dressed man, and he's with Precious, um, and uh, he does a lot of strutting and dancing, which immediately. Uh, you know, set me against him because obviously heels don't dance. <laughs> um, and Brad Armstrong is just standing there in a tracksuit top, uh, kind of looking a bit like Bob Backlund in '93. Uh, you know, no gimmick at all. Um, so quite contrast between these two guys. Any story going into this one? There's no really story going into this. It's just like, hey, we're going to throw these two in here. You know, Brad Armstrong had just shown up in Crockett Land a couple of weeks, if not a month before this. And uh, Jimmy Garvin actually was feuding with Magnum TA through October when Magnum got in his accident. So uh, I don't think they were leading to Jimmy Garvin and Magnum here. I think it was just kind of a side feud. So Garvin might have been pegged for this the whole time. Um, but like I said, there's no running storyline between these two at all. Now, this is our first look at Garvin as well, isn't it? I don't, I don't think we've seen him before. Chad, have we seen Jimmy Garvin before this time? No, this is, this is our first look on these uh, Crockett shows. Yeah, he noticeably to me seemed like somebody who would be better suited to being in WWF at this time. He's definitely of a different style to a lot of the other guys on the card. More of a showman. Yeah, he's definitely uh, more of a uh, showmanship type heel, but uh, I, don't, I don't know. I've kind of always liked Jimmy Carmen. I think <laughs> I've, I've been higher on him than most. I have too. I've always, I've always appreciated his work. I think it's it's different, it's good, and I, I, I like the gimmick he did. I, th- I think you'd like his uh, world-class stuff a lot, Parf, 
in the uh, kind of 84-85 era. If okay. you watched it, he had a real good run in world class then. And then also the, the, the AWA, I know you guys are still watching the yeah. AWA. That he, there's a lot of him on there, and there's other stuff that hasn't made that set that he was pretty good up there, too. Okay. Yeah, he 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 weirdly reminds me of uh, someone like Lanny Poffo, maybe <laughs> in a in a, in a strange way. Did like did, where did he come from originally? Like where did he start out? Did he start out in Texas or? He actually started in Florida. Um, All right, okay. Wrestling down there just was like a you know white meat baby face doing his thing, and uh, I believe he went to Texas world class, and that was I believe early '83 is when gorgeous Jimmy Garvin was born. So we, so we get Matt work to start, um, and there's a lot of kind of headlocks and counter-wrestling, um, wrist locks, reversals, arm bars, and counter-arm bars in the early going here. Uh, Rick Stewart mentions that the referee here is Scrappy McGowan, who we see quite a lot. Where's this dude come from? Scrappy McGowan wasn't on any of the previous shows that we've seen. Was he a Central States ref, I wonder? I would have no idea where Scrappy came from. Um, Garvin applies a head scissors for what seems like an hour to me. Uh, and eventually Armstrong does a neat little headstand to get out of it. Um, only for Garvin to reapply it. Armstrong counters with a headlock. Shivani mentions that ten minutes have gone. We get a back suplex from Garvin. Brad takes a tumble to the outside and stays there for what feels like a very long time for me. Um, then he gets back in. We get a backbreaker from Garvin, which gets two. There are some near falls, and then there's a weird draw as Garvin comes from the top rope and misses anyway. Um, now, I've got a feeling I'm going to be in the minority here, but I pretty much hated this match. Uh, I reckon you two uh, will have liked it, or at least liked it better than I did. <laughs> so, Chad, I'll, I'll leave it to you. Uh, I, I kind of agree with you. Um, <laughs> I, I do like... Um, Jimmy, I actually thought I'd be the lowest one on this match, so I'm kind of happy. I thought we might have some contention. Uh, I do like Garvin, but uh, I thought this match was... I, I can see how some people would enjoy this match. It's kind of a easing into the card, opening match type. Uh, but to me, there was a lot of kind of decent hold working, but it didn't really lead to anywhere or any consequence. And I always kind of hate that, where... You just sort of have people just kind of working on holds and doing a few reversals and whatnot. And the draw, I thought, was pretty confusing. One thing, uh, you know, just touching on Jimmy Garvin, I always thought it was strange that he was, you know, they said he was brothers to Ron Garvin, which I thought they looked, you know, nothing alike. But then I was just looking it up on, uh, I was looking Jimmy Garvin up on Wikipedia and, Brian, I guess you probably knew this, but I never knew this. Ron Garvin was actually Jimmy Garvin's stepfather. Yep. Which yeah, I mean that, that's basically it. He was his stepfather. I don't know if they were acknowledging they were brothers yet uh, on television. I don't think they acknowledged that until another four or five months from now. I think whenever uh, Jimmy Garvin turns turns face, um, I think then there, there's a big hoo ha that happens. We'll get to that. Um, where Garvin comes on and says, that's my brother, everything else. I don't, I don't think they're mentioning it right here. Now, I know in Canada, I'm actually trying to find this right now, Jimmy and Ronnie Garvin were fighting in Montreal against the Rougeau brothers, acting as brothers. Yeah, 
it, it seems bizarre that just that G- that was you know Ron was Jimmy's stepfather when they're al- <laughs> they're only eight years apart. That that's all. That's all. Awesome. But anyway, this match, yeah, I, I thought this was pretty much nothing. Um, it's just you know. 15 minutes of rest holes, right? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of side headlocks and stuff like that. I'm not uh, too huge on Brad Armstrong, to be honest, uh, overall either. I think he's fine, but uh, and I kind of have uh, kind of have to fight back some uh, personal feelings with that because I know my dad. Uh, Bob Armstrong's his favorite wrestler. Bob Armstrong and Mr. Wrestling too. Uh, my dad grew up in Marietta, where Bob Armstrong was a fireman um, in Marietta, and so one of his, even though he wasn't a huge wrestling fan growing up, he uh, always talks about driving by the firehouse and seeing Bob Armstrong lifting weights and whatnot. Uh, so he sort of default really liked Brad when I was watching, you know, as a kid, but I, I mean, I don't think he's terrible, but nothing great either. Am I right in thinking that Brad Armstrong is kind of hyped by some people as being, you know, possibly one of the all-time great workers who just didn't have much charisma? I, I, I think, um, I would say there was a lot of hype around him more kind of five or six years ago when you first started having people sort of look back, uh, you know, at the territorial days and errors and kind of could start looking back at that nostalgically and really analyze what the, uh, what was going on there. Now I think you're starting to see it kind of go the other way. Um, you know, I, I, I know a few years ago, there was a lot of play around Brad Armstrong, and I watched a lot of his matches. And again, I mean, you know, I wouldn't call him, again, it's kind of tough. I mean, I would call him a good worker, but I certainly don't think, like, he was just, you know, a mouthpiece or something away from being a world champion, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I kind of see it the other way. I think if he could talk a little better and they put a little something behind him, he could have done something. World champion, maybe not, but. I could see him getting a TV title run or maybe even a uh, U.S. title run, as he uh, he he had he was great in the ring. I thought very sound, very technical, and there's a match that he has with Tully in early '87 uh, when Tully's defending the, the TV title on television a lot. That's probably one of my favorite like like WCW TV show matches of all time. I mean, he definitely has some. Uh, you know, people that really enjoy. It. I mean, I think it'd been interesting if, for instance, he'd had uh, the interview skills of Road Dog, his brother. Yeah. Um, you know, with his wrestling ability. I, I mean, I would have liked to have seen how that would have worked out. But uh, yeah, I can certainly understand how people would like Brad Armstrong a good bit. I'm just, I guess, I'm I'm, I'm lower on him than most. I would say. Just have interest before we move on, Brian. Did you actually like this match? Uh, yeah, I did. I, I think it was about five minutes away and, and a real finish from being really good. But with what happened on here, it was, it was okay. Average. Okay. All right. But d- d- just for me, I mean, this may be a kind of stylistic uh, or, or taste thing, but um, like if there are no strikes or decent kind of high spots in a match and it's just rest holds um, or, or, or just submission, uh, you know, submission maneuvers and counter wrestling, uh, I feel like nothing has happened in the match, basically. So, 
I don't know why I enjoy those kind of things. They just kind of work over each other, try to try to tell a small story, and you know, I don't know why I enjoy that stuff, but for some strange reason, I do. <laughs> the, the, the only thing I'll give this match is, is that, despite the fact that most of it was kind of map based, they did work at a, quite a decent pace. Really, mm-hmm. um, that, that's what I'd give it. Anyway, let's move on. Um, so we're, we're over to uh, Greensboro now. Tom Miller is uh, obviously the ring announcer. He's looking pretty old at this point. He's starting to look uh, like a like a pensioner at this stage. And uh, our announcers are Bob Coddle and not David Crockett yet again, but Johnny Weaver. Now I can't help but wonder where is David Crockett? There there must be a reason why he doesn't do these Starcade shows because they had two announced teams here and he didn't get on either of them, which uh, which is pretty upsetting for me. Um, given what Weaver would end up bringing to this show. Maybe he's at home with the family enjoying some turkey. <laughs> so we've got, um, it's a tag match, and we've got Baron Von Reschke as a face, Hector Guerrero in a big Mexican hat, um, versus Shaska Watley and Brian's favorite, the Barbarian. Drawing away meaningless villain again. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> um, so what's the story here? Why is Brian... Von Reschke a face. He was a heel last time we saw him. A couple small things that happened leading up to this. I think they, they did a good job of throwing this match together. Uh, Von Reschke had been having some, some small issues with Paul Jones in interviews and you know the, the typical lead up. You can see uh, turns coming. But finally on the October 18th World Championship Wrestling, uh, Baron actually lost a fall in a six man when he was tagging with Rude and Shaska Watley against uh, Brad Armstrong and the Kansas Jayhawks. Following that match, uh, Jones Army attacked him and turned on the Baron, the folly turning him face right after that. Uh, from there, so now we have Van, Von Raschke on the face side. The, the Hector Guerrero thing, teaming up with him, comes from Hector and Manny Fernandez, who we'll talk about later, who also turned, turned heel on uh, poor Jimmy Valiant, um, had been tagging quite a bit through the summer of 86, take, having a couple of world tag title shots uh, with the Midnight Express, a couple of other good matches, and Hector Guerrero would come out to try to talk to Manny Fernandez when he was having an interview with Manny and, the, and uh, Rude. And they ended up beating Hector down. So Hector and Baron Von Raschke team up now to go against su- some of uh, Paul Jones' army and Shaska Wally and the Barbarian. So was Hector actually um, on quite a decent run here with Crockett or was he just passing through? Because he's another one of those guys who moves around quite a lot. I, I haven't seen him. I, he doesn't do a lot television-wise, but... Uh, like I said, him and Manny got a really nice house show push of really a bunch of world tag title shots over, over the summer and early fall. He, he seems pretty over as well. And Baron Von Raschke, I have to say, was very over with with this crowd, which uh, surprised me a little bit. Um, but I, well, I guess uh, Von Raschke had been around for years, right? So maybe the fans were used to seeing him. Um, <laughs> Shaska uh, seems to have learned uh, at the start of this match, because he's not dancing anymore, he just has a serious look on his face, which kept, uh, which is happy, uh, which kept me happy because uh, obviously heels don't dance. Um, Shasko and Hector start things off here, and Barbarian, uh, Barbarian gets a tag, and he shotguns Hector after catching him, which is a quite neat little spot. Uh, Barb takes a tumble to the outside. Hector crossbodies. Uh, him by diving over the top rope and Coddle sort of marks out of this and says he's never seen this before um, which uh, surprises me 
given how long Coddle was working at this point. They get to see now. Oh, the Baron's on the outside. He. Oh! I don't think I've ever seen that hole before. Now, clean over the top rope. Hector Guerrero crossbody right on the Barbarian outside, but Watley is changing the tide of battle. Weaver leaves the booth to do an interview with Dusty that we never see. Uh, so there's more double duty going on. So we have a situation here. Weaver's doing double duty. Tony Schiavone's doing double duty. And David Crockett is still not here. So Turkey time. <laughs> he's just sitting there with uh, with his brother eating turkey. Um, there's a loud Von Raschke chant. Um, and then I couldn't help but notice there's an old bearded ref. Do you know who this guy is? Any ideas, Brian? No, I actually had no idea who he was. I'm not real good with who the referees are outside of the, the big guns. <laughs> yeah, so this was quite a long show, so we were getting to see some of the like the lower card refs, like this bearded guy and Scrappy McGowan. Um, Hector's our face in peril here. The heels work him over. Eventually, Hector spits at Shaska for, a, for the hot tag, which was an odd bit of business, because I think just before that, Shaska had spat at him when he was on the floor, so I was a little bit distasteful. Um, Von Raschke gets a claw on Watley, Barbarian counters, but Baron gets uh, the three anyway, after an elbow, and the crowd go wild. Um, Post-match the heels, sucker the Baron, uh, and I still think that Von Raschke looks awful. He just looks old, and I don't, I'm not buying that. This guy is going toe-to-toe with a guy like the Barbarian. Um, and I also don't understand why the heels had to lose here. Chad, any thoughts? Um, yeah, this was... I didn't think this was a nothing match. Um, I, I would have liked to have seen the Barbarian, uh, quite frankly, get a pinfall victory on this. Uh, just a couple little things on uh, Baron Von Reisky. Again, I've never seen him in a good match. I know in the AWA set, uh, he, you know shows up some there, uh, so I'm hopeful that I will see a decent Baron performance there. And Hector Guerrero, again, I think is sort of in the same Brad Armstrong mode. I feel like this show has a lot of, uh, of wrestlers that I'm I'm kind of go the other way on than sort of opinion is. I've never been a big Hector fan or, uh, honestly, Chavo fan, his brother. I know a lot of people like Chavo Sr. Uh, quite a bit, actually, and... Uh, the Mid-South stuff I've seen with Chavo and Hector, I've, I've liked. But uh, the Japan footage and what limited other territorial footage I've seen, I've not been too enthused by it. And I think it's ridiculous that Cottle, you know, on the crossbody, said he'd never seen a move like that again. I mean, yes, that was a, uh, a nice move for 1986, but... Um, give me a break, you know. <laughs> it's not like that would have been a crazy move at that point in time, I wouldn't think. Like an unbelievable once-in-a-lifetime. Ch- Chavo has one really good match with Mr. Olympia on that Mid-South uh, set. That was kind of like, I haven't actually finished watching that, but it was like in my top two or three. That uh, Chavo versus Mr. Olympia. Um, that was really good. And he had a couple of good tag appearances on that set, but the stuff yeah. from all Japan pretty much sucked from those guys. From both Hector Yeah, I did, and I did not like the all Japan stuff at all. 
I mean, on the whole Japan stuff, uh, I mean, it, I mean, a lot of people, you know, in the comments seemed to like it okay, where it was sort of mid-range for them. Uh, most of that was in my bottom, you know, 20 matches or so, so, uh, and then his New Japan stuff that I've seen is kind of the same way. I've not been impressed with it either, so, but that this, this match, though, was nothing, and really felt like filler and honestly I kind of wish they'd have scrapped this whole match and gave some time to a couple other matches. I, I can't understand why they won't put the Barbarian over. Any thoughts Brian? Uh, they hate me maybe. <laughs> um, I, honestly I, I think what they were trying to do here is like this version of Paul Jones Army and maybe they were trying to start thinning it out because uh, as we get into the next year I know Paul Jones starts to really focus on a couple of tag teams and you don't see as much of these guys, you know, and that, that large grouping that comes on television all the time. So I don't know if their goal here was, okay, let's, let's try to thin the herd here a little bit um, and go from there. And why Baron Von Raschke gets a pin here, I, I don't understand. I mean, up in AWA land, I get it. He's a friend of Vern's. He's from there. That's fine. Down here, I, I don't know. But, like, you're pushing a guy who really needs to retire. Yeah, he looks like my grandfather wrestling. I'm sure he's a very nice guy. See some good interviews with him, nice guy, but like, yeah, it's over. It, and, and, he, and he'd keep going until, I mean, the early 90s. Is he ever any good? Because, like, like, um, like Chad, I've never seen Baron Von Reschke in a good match. Now, you know what? I haven't either. It's, I haven't seen a lot of his early stuff. Um, I, so I really can't comment too much on back in the day, but everything I've ever seen, not real good. No, nothing, nothing that's made me say, wow, I gotta see more of him. So, um, yeah, not not a good not a good start to this uh, card on either in either town, in my view. Um, our third match is the Kansas Jayhawks, which is Dutch Mantel and Bobby Jaggers. So obviously some uh, Memphis uh, guys here versus the Russians, the Ivan and uh, the Khrushchev version, who are the U.S. Tag Champs. Uh, my least favorite, one of my least favorite set of uh, titles. Oh really? I love the U.S. tag titles. <laughs> I I've been back and forth with lots of guys on this. Uh, I just like for me, I don't. I just don't think there are enough tag teams to justify having a, a second tier. Even at this time, when you have all of these awesome teams, I I just think the Russians should be in the world title mix. They shouldn't be messing around with these uh with these U.S. tag belts. Um. Yeah, I can just never, like, for me, it's such a, like, that's not a big deal, surely, winning the U.S. Tag Championships. You might as well not have a belt. Or, or do you disagree, Brian? <laughs> I, I love the titles. I think it's a great idea to kind of, usually with the World Tag Team titles, it's something that tends to get on somebody, especially in this era, and they'll stay there for months and months and months. And with the U.S. titles, it's something you can kind of bounce around a bunch of um, different teams. Maybe you'd be able to push some people you're trying to develop. Um, or to keep somebody else strong while not making them, you know, the world tag team champions is, is my guess. That's why I love the belts. I just hated the fact that they would come and go and come and go throughout the years. I didn't like that, but the first couple of years, I love them. I threw from about here till I'd say about 80, after the Fantastics lose them at the end of 88, they start to lose a little bit of luster, but the, for the next two years, I love them. Of course, eventually, uh, Marcus Alexander, Bagwell, and the Patriot would get their hands on these titles. I think. Yeah, yes, at that point, it was, you know, and Greg Valentine and Terry Taylor, and yes, <laughs> bad. Yeah, uh, j 
just before we start this, Chad, any thoughts on US Tag Championships? Where do you fall on this one? Um, I mean, I don't... I would say they're not in my upper echelon of my favorite belts of all time, but I think when they were pushed appropriately, they did serve a purpose. So I guess I'm probably in the middle of both of you guys. Any story going into this one? Where is uh, where have these Memphis guys come from? You remind me of telling Jag or Jaggers. Basically, they came in. Uh, they were they were they interviewed a few times on television. They actually fought Ivan and Crusher on the September twentieth uh, NWA Pro Show. Uh, one of those TV that didn't have an end. They they went to you know the show ended. They went off. Um, the actual United States Tag Team Title Tournament was held on uh, September twenty eighth, nineteen eighty six, and. Uh, Big long tournament, and the final of it was actually these two teams again. Ivan and Crusher taking on uh, Dutch Mantel and Bobby Jaggers, and of course the Russians won there. Um, September 11th, they, they or October 11th, they were on uh, television interviewing with the new tag titles and gloating over having that. They, they showed some highlights of the, the titles. Then from there on, it was you know the interviews. Uh, I'm going to beat you. You're going to beat me until about two weeks before Starcade on the November 15th Pro. The Russians did run in and attack the Jayhawks uh, during a squash match to kind of reheat things up for this one here. So this would have to be no DQ for the United States Tag Team titles. Um, I don't know if you wanted to quickly talk about the the U.S. Tag Team title tournament or not. Uh, there, there were some interesting teams in there. Um, teams like you were talking about how the U.S. Tag titles are, in your mind anyway, part of like not something you could really make an important thing. And then you you actually make some sense if you look at the tag teams involved in the tournament final. I mean, we had teams like Tim Horner and Nelson Royal, um, Dick Murdoch and Ronnie Garvin. Wow. Baron Von Raschke and Shaska Wally. Now, this is before Baron's face turn had happened. Um, Bill Dundee and Buddy Landau. I mean, there, there are some good teams in here as well, but there's a lot of fluff in here to get this up to a 16-team tournament. Um, you will enjoy to know that Dusty and Magnum got themselves all the way to the semifinals of that tournament and couldn't lose. They ended up losing by DQ to the Russians. So, even in a meaningless tag tournament, not even on television, Big okay. Dust has got to get to the semis. That was a one-shot deal for Dick Murdoch as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know he, he'd be back for good a couple more months into 87. He'd start wrestling. At this point, yeah, he wasn't he wasn't around too much here. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, it looks like a decent tournament. That whole night was actually pretty good. But aside from the tournament, there's another match that we'll, we'll talk about in a few minutes here that unified the national and United States tag team or United States championship. The, the uh, given that Mantel and Jaggers are built, you know, built from coming from Kansas here, I'm guessing they may have been part of the Central States package. Cause, yes. Yeah, but I mean, Mantel's known as a Memphis guy mainly, right? Yeah, oh yeah, I definitely. I think of Mantel a lot for Smoky Mountain too, but that's years later. So obviously, uh, it's Ivan Koloff to start, uh, as always. Um, but we get we get quick tags in and out between Mantel and Jaggers, um, but we don't get an extended heel and peril segment because Ivan's out. Um, Khrushchev beats on Mantel, who fights back. Mantel's back is so hairy; it looks like a so somebody stuck some carpet to it I mean geez. sexy <laughs> this guy's basically a gorilla like he's so hairy um, somebody loves him <laughs> Ivan's uh, Ivan comes back in and there's more double teaming by the faces Tony mentions that uh, Ivan really needs this win 
um, because the Kremlin won't be happy after what's happened with Nikita. More on that later, maybe? Oh Yeah, yeah we'll get to that in a, in a little bit. I noticed Tony Schiavone's oddly quiet during this match, and there are several quite long silences, um, which is a little bit strange. Because uh, uh, Rick Stewart's basically a play-by-play guy as well, so they sort of take it in turns. But I noticed there are long periods where Schiavone doesn't say anything. Um, Jaggers gets, uh, gets a hot tag and gets the double noggin knocker, uh, which gets a two. Ivan gets a chain. Mantel gets Sue Baby, which seems to be a big whip. Ivan gets the worst of it, but Crusher picks up the chain. Ivan Irish whips Jaggers into the chain for the three. Um, and uh, I've written here, sack this ref. Sandy McGowan just seems to be letting everything go. Did I, was this a non-DQ match, or was it? It was, it was no DQ. It was really. non Oh, right, yeah. okay. They didn't really make a big deal out of that as this uh, match was progressing. Um, yeah, you don't hear a lot about that going in. You figure that might be something they'd want to want to push along to kind of heat, put some more heat on the match, but they didn't. Chad, any thoughts on this one? Um, I think we're three for three, in my opinion, and not getting off to a good start on this show. Uh, th- I thought uh, Dutch Mantel is somebody I've always really, really liked, uh, but I thought Bobby Jaggers here was pretty much terrible. Um, Ivan was, as we know, well past his prime, and Crusher, I'm not a huge fan of anyway, so this this match didn't have a ton going for it. Uh, just, you know, pretty lackluster action. Uh, okay finish. I thought the finish was actually probably the best part with the uh, shoe baby and chain getting involved, but not a whole lot happening for me. Yeah. I'm I'm kind I'm kind of with you there, Chad. Uh, Brian. Uh, same thing. It's it's I was I was actually expecting a lot more out of it. I've seen Dutch do a lot of some good work. You know, I've seen Bobby Jaggers do some singles work in uh, Southwest wrestling and places like that. But yeah, I, I was not a big fan of this match either. It was just kind of kind of there. No, not much. I didn't see a good story told. It was basically let's beat each other up and then we'll pin you in the end. It was. The Russians, I don't know. I think the Russians are another casualty of the Magnum TA accident because losing Nikita kind of kills them completely as like being, you know, a super tough group to be feared. They're starting to feel a bit stale at this point, I think. Yeah, and I I really, I I think losing Nikita killed that because Nikita, as we'll see in a little bit here, had unified the National and United States Championship as well. So Magnum stays healthy. You figure Nikita doesn't turn face. They have the U.S. tag titles and the now unified U.S. national championship. They're still a threesome and looking dangerous. I, I still think that they, they look way better than, than, than what happened here. And quickly, within a, a month and a half of Nikita turning face, the, the Russians are you know spiraling downhill to irrelevance quickly. It, it, they kind of remind me of the Smash Crush version of Demolition. You know, yes. Kind of faded by this point. Um. So our next match, we got our first look at one of the true legends of uh, of wrestling, in my view, ravishing Rick Rude, um, who's with Paul Jones, looking pretty fly in a kind of seventy suit. He also looks pretty big, Paul Jones. Like he he's almost built like a square. You know, he's got a very square body. Um, and he he's taking on Wahoo McDaniel um, in a Indian strap match. Rue comes out to smooth operator, but we don't get his trademark promo at this point. Um, 
Wahoo comes out to the Starcade music, which uh, incidentally is the music that you were trying to hum last week, Brian. <laughs> Best music of all time. Um, so, any story with Rude coming in? Uh, he, he showed up from World Class. I know he had dropped the World Class Championship to Chris Adams uh, July 4th, 1986. He, he shows up here immediately uh, as a heel with Shows up in September on television. Um, to his de- I'm sorry, October. He de- debuts on television. He's with Paul Jones from the start. Um, with Wahoo for them to get to this match. Wahoo won the, the national championship from Tully Blanchard, who, as we left the Great American Bash, still had the national championship. Wahoo beat him for it in Los Angeles on October 28th, 1986, in a match that wasn't televised, which I, I don't understand why, but wasn't. Wahoo would end up losing the national title a month later to Nikita Nikita Koloff in the the unification match we discussed earlier on September 28th. So after that, he was kind of floating around, uh, debut rude debuts, and directly after that, Manny Fernandez would turn heel, and Rick Rude and Manny Fernandez would start to be together. You'd see them interviewing stuff like that, and then finally on October 18th. Uh, Wahoo McDaniel came in to interrupt an interview with Manny and Rude. Still up to that, talked to Manny about, hey, why did you turn heel? What's going on here? But Rude and Bull beat him down pretty bad on television. That kind of set up this this feud here. Um, and the only other funny thing going into this match was Rick Rude constantly calling him Squahoo McDaniel, leading into this over the last couple of weeks before Starcade. But uh, I'm not sure why they, they decided to make it an Indian Strat match other than that was Wahoo's specialty. Booking-wise, I'm not sure if I would have put Rude with uh, Paul Jones at, at this point. The army seemed pretty big anyway at this point. Um, like Jones seemed to be managing every other guy on the card. Um, and given what we've talked about Jones before, you know, not a great promo, not great charisma from him. Um, and given what we know about Rude, like, th- th- does he even need a manager? He always seems to have a manager, but th- does he need one? No, I, I definitely don't think he does. He's, he's he's a good talker. He's always been fantastic on the mic. I don't know why they have to always stick him with, with somebody. There's a loud boo for Root to start and a decent pot for Wahoo. Um, when he takes off his robes, when Root takes off his robes, the girls scream. Um, he does have a nice body, to be honest. Uh, actually, he looks a little bit bigger here than he would a couple of years later in WWF. Like, in 87, um, early 88, Rude is really skinny. Like, I don't know if you can... Like, he he has a period where he's really skinny, and then he bogs up for the Warrior feud. Um, But he looks like, you know, normal Rick Rude size here. Um, So, that interested me. Rude's in control of the staff with, after the early exchanges, and he gets... um, He touches two corners quickly. But then Wahoo comes back, chokes and whips Rude with the uh, with the strap, gets three corners. Rude comes back, um, hits a knee from the top rope. But then Wahoo regains control and gets three corners again. Um, Jones gets up on the apron. Rude hits Wahoo. Um, what happens here? J- Jones gets up on the a- apron. Uh, Wahoo's got, like, Rude in three corners, and Rude hits Wahoo into the fourth turnbuckle, uh, and Wahoo gets the win. 
So this this match really was over before it, like it didn't really get going. This match, um, it was kind of over rather suddenly in my view. Hector and uh, Hector and Baron von Raschke went out to stop a beatdown um, after the match. Um, yeah, not a lot going on from my point of view, Chad. Uh, yeah, this would be the match that uh, I would have scrapped the uh, Hector von Raschke tag in favor of giving this match a few minutes. Um, I, th- I thought a couple little things were interesting here. One is uh, really how much Rude had developed his persona that he would be known for this early into his career. I mean, he's very young here, and he definitely um, is utilizing most of the Ravishing Rick Rude gimmick. Uh, already, and there was a few little tweaks um, before his more, you know, recognizable run in 88, 89, and 90 in the WWF. Uh, Rude did a, some good bumps in this match, and the finish with Wahoo sort of slipping on a banana peel I thought was actually fine in the way it looked. It was okay. Uh, you know, it did make Rude look incredibly stupid. It gave Wahoo a win in his specialty match, and for a mid-card match, I thought it was fine, but it did seem like this match was sort of worked in fast-forward style, where, you know, everything was really rushed because they were only given a few minutes um, for the match, so that was kind of disappointing. I I actually question Wahoo getting the win here. If this was in Vinceland, um, I think Rude would have been going over like there, there are plenty of examples of a heel coming in to 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 WWF and then getting a kind of nothing win over a guy like I don't know Jimmy Snooker say is usually in that spot or Tito Santana say and Wahoo is pretty much the equivalent of a Snooker or a Santana in Crockett in my view. So um, did he need this win? I'm I'm just I'm just questioning why uh, why put Wahoo over when Rude is the heel coming in. Oh, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think it's more so than that, that, you know, Rick Rude was about to win a title, too, a couple, a week or two after Starcade, and if you're going to set him up to, to carry one of the big titles in the company with, with Manny, um, you got to give him a win coming out of the gate here at a big show like this. I, I didn't understand the loss either. I didn't understand the end of the match whenever uh, Manny runs in and they beat on Wahoo, why Hector Guerrero has to come in to make the save, kind of makes... Rude and Manny look weak and diving out when they, they should have been able to, you know, if you're going to have them lose to Wahoo, fine, but at least let them, you know, get their heat back by pounding down Wahoo and pounding down Hector and walking off, you know, at least victorious in that manner if you were going to go where they were going with them a couple weeks later. This is not a great start to this uh, show, um, although I was entertained by seeing uh, by seeing Rude. Um, he did, like you said, Chad, there were, there were shades of what was to come with him uh, already, um, which surprised me a little bit, because uh, a lot of his kind of 87 stuff isn't, isn't that good. Like, his early WWF stuff is poor compared to what he shows here. So we're, we're going back to Atlanta now, and it's Bill Dundee versus Sam Houston, who's the Central States champion. Uh, Dundee, another Memphis guy. I'm guessing he was also part of the Central States package. Yep. Uh, any story going into this, Brian, or is this just a match over over the title? Uh, unless something big was going on in Central States, which I'm not I'm not aware of. As I haven't seen a lot of Central States footage. It's 
kind of hard to get a hold of. Um, not too much, you know. Sam Houston in September said he was heading heading to Central States. I know that's when we had talked before about Dusty shipping him off up there. Um, I guess he won the title at some point and was facing Bill Dundee here in a, I guess, just a match to say, hey, here's another company we bought. Rick Stewart does mention that there's a lot of animosity going back, so there may be some um, some history between these two guys in Central States. Um, he also mentions the fans in St. Louis and Kansas know these two guys well. So um, this does seem to have been something shipped over from there. It's all Houston to start. Dundee gains control. Um, the ref is on his back about hair pulling quite a lot in this early uh, in this early phase of the match. It goes out to the floor. Houston nails Dundee on the railings. Um, they, they get back in, and Dundee gets a big right hand from the top rope. We get a snap there from Dundee, a nasty-looking face stretch, some really awesome-looking jabs from Dundee now, um, and then some cocky strutting. And this kind of strutting from Dundee is acceptable to me. He's not dancing, he's just doing cock cocky strutting, so that's acceptable for me. Um, I was happy at this uh, kind of heel, heel cockiness. We get a vicious, uh, some vicious choking from Dundee on the bottom rope, um, and a very feeble "Let's go, Sam!" chant from the crowd. Um, and I've noticed they did this in the WTBS uh, studios, uh, watching those matches from, uh, from there as well. I, that "Let's go, Sam!" chant always sounds really lame. Um, Dundee comes from the top rope again, and we get a front face lock. Houston makes a really fired up comeback with some good punches and a great high knee drop. Houston's actually looking a lot better than he than he than he uh, was a couple of uh, months ago. He misses the second knee drop and hurts his knee, and Dundee immediately goes to work on the leg. He gets an Indian deathlock. Um, there's a lot of urgency in the way that Dundee works this match. We get a ref bump. Uh, Dundee uses uh, uses a boot on Houston, but the ref actually sees him, and we get an instant DQ, which pisses off Dundee, hits uh, Houston a few times more with the boot. Um, and I've just written here, how good is Dundee? I pretty much love this. I thought he was awesome. So, Chad? Uh, D Dundee is great. Dundee is one of, uh, I mean, honestly, I think he's a great worker, but for me and what I enjoy in wrestling, he's probably one of my favorite workers of all time. Um, and here, I, I would guess he was probably maybe booking Central States at this time. I know a lot of times when he would exile from Memphis, um, him and Lawler were switching bookings and stuff like that. Um, but here I thought, uh, you know, uh, Phil Schneider from Death Valley Driver, one of his talking points is that Dundee is the king of sort of the Memphis studio match and how to work it. And I agree with that. And I think here you saw uh, a glimpse of that and that he essentially worked, a, I would say, a kind of studio, uh, you know, match where he mixed in a lot of stick and a lot of interesting spots with great punches, uh, made Houston look well. I was kind of disappointed in the crowd heat because I thought by far this was the best work we've seen so far Absolutely. tonight, but uh, but uh, the crowd heat was very bad. Um, yeah. And then the finish I thought was fine. 
uh, you know, kind of, it did, again, I don't think it made Dundee look, you know, really stupid as he'd been trying to sort of get these cheap shots uh, throughout the whole match with the hair pulling um, and had just barely, you know, he was taking a lot of risk in doing that and trying to elude the referee and finally this time he got caught. It's a nice change, actually, for there to be a ref bump and then the, the guy actually gets caught. That's a nice uh, little story. I, I enjoyed it. And um, I haven't seen a whole lot of Bill Dundee, but uh, on, on this kind of evidence, he looks absolutely awesome to me. He worked with a lot of urgency and a lot of kind of viciousness in everything he did. And he just made it seem like he really wanted to win this match and hurt Houston. Um, and he did a lot of the kind of, uh, you know, Nice little heel spots as well. I enjoyed him, Brian. Yeah, he's he's great at that at using his size. I mean, he's he's an undersized person, a small person, and and in all his matches, his high end Memphis matches, and all of his high end matches, he's really great at sort of working that intense size style where he sort of has to overcome that with other attributes. Yeah, I agree completely. I'd like to. This match actually made me want to go find some some Central States TV just to see where they went after this, and you know if they had any other their good stuff on television. Uh, so I, I I love Bill Dundee too. I love his Memphis work. I mean, Bill Dundee will always for me be associated with Jerry Lawler. Yeah. But up here, he, this was good, and I wanted to see more. And does he stick around, or is this just a kind of? Uh you know, limited time sort of deal. You know, they were, he was around for a while with uh, Buddy Landau earlier in the year. They had come and gone, and then they, uh, from here, I'm pretty sure, they go back to Memphis. Bill Dundee goes back down to Memphis and uh, works down there for a little bit. And I'm not sure exactly where he goes after that, but I know he's, he's not here much longer in Crockett Land. So, yeah, easily the uh, match of the night so far. Um, we go from this to part 362 of Jimmy Valiant versus Paul Jones in another hair versus hair match uh, with two added stipulations. One is that Big Mama's uh, Big Mama's hair is the one that will be cut if Valiant loses, and the other is that Manny Fernandez has to be locked in a cage above the ring. So, Brian, can you? How do we get to this point? Yeah, it was an inter- it was an interesting ride to get here. Uh, I have a comment on this after I'm done, but basically after the bash matter, the Great American Bash matches, Paul Jones spent a couple weeks gloating over uh, shaving Jimmy Valiant and continued to still want to take Jimmy Valiant out for good. He begins to woo Manny Fernandez by offering him lots of money to come join the army. Uh, Manny between August 9th and Early September continues to say he won't turn. He always with the bull, but you can kind of see in the interviews and stuff, Manny looking at the money a little more, starting to starting to think that maybe I do want to do this. And then finally, on the October 11th worldwide, they they do show that Manny finally did turn heel on Jimmy Valiant, yet another friend beating down poor Jimmy and leaving him. Um, on the same show, uh, Jimmy Valiant finally has had enough, and he says in an interview that he will put up anything for one more shot at Paul Jones in the ring. So, of course, that they go with Big Mama's hair against Paul Jones' hair, and the added stipulation is that Manny, his former friend, is put up in a cage uh, to get us into this one. What I, a couple of things I wanted to add was, first off, even if you win this match, Jimmy, like, you lost. 
he's taken all your friends. He shaved your head. He's done all this to you, and all you did was shaved his head in the end. Big deal. And really, like, you, you really got your ass kicked for, for, what, two and a half years over here, just everything taken away from you. So I, I don't know why you'd want his hair. I think you'd probably want to kill him at this point. And um, the only other thing is, I thought, why not do, like, a kind of a handicap match with Paul Jones as a manager? wouldn't be. Like, do Rude, Manny, and Paul Jones against Jimmy Valiant and Wahoo. Jimmy's hair or Big Mama's hair versus Paul Jones' hair doing a no DQ match. You can still have the same ending with Jones finally getting his head shaved. But I, I just thought it would work these angles in a little bit better than what we got. Um, the commentators do mention that. Coddle mentions that. Um, Valiant's been depressed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how could you not be? My God. <laughs> Sorry, Paul, I don't know Paul Jones is, me. He's like taking his will to live at this point. <laughs> Anyway, the crowd is still wild for Jimmy Valiant here, um, who's still shucking and driving away. Um, Manny Fernandez is very reluctant to get in the cage, and in pretty much his only uh, notable comment for the entire night, Weaver calls the cage Betty Lou. <laughs> is that some expression that I've never heard of? What's, what's the deal there? I, I believe that's the same cage that uh, Dusty Rhodes brought in to give to the Rock and Roll Express uh, when they were feuding with the Midnight Express to jam Jim Cornette in because he was interfering in their matches. And I believe that's what Dusty had called it, Betty Lou, then as well. <laughs> yeah, it makes no sense. But uh, I, I hate that cage thing. Like, you know before you get there you're going into this cage. Obviously, you've agreed to it because it's in a contract. What's the deal? Get in. Yeah, you know, that, that's one of the things that's always bothered me about 1980s wrestling in that little cage is that we have to spend the five, ten minutes on not getting in and being shoved in. It's like, dude, you said you were going to get in. Get in, shut up. Nine times out of ten, it's the manager or the valet who's right, in that cage. Right. So this just shows how this whole thing is asked backwards here with the wrestler getting in the cage and the manager working the match. <laughs> um, but for some reason, there's a need to see more. Paul Jones wrestling at this point. I mean, how many years has he been retired here? Two now? Well, he's wrestled, what, is this the third or fourth time on a big show these two have wrestled with him as a manager? Jeez. Anyway, the Baron and Wahoo and Hector all come out um, to put him in the cage. uh, And he goes in the cage. There's a shine sequence from Valiant to start off with um, until Jones nails him with the dreaded foreign object in the tights. Um, but he misses a knee drop, uses the object again, goes for an Indian death lock, but Valiant, uh, bloodied, fired up, and basically spazzing out, uh, gets a sleeper on, then gets um, then gets hold of the foreign object, and I couldn't actually tell what it was, it was some like little white object, and uh, he gets the three. So finally we get a match which is, which is at least worked, like you'd expect a manager versus wrestler ma- uh, match to, to work where, you know, Jones gets very little offense in and what he's able to get in isn't that effective. Um, crowd is absolutely electric here because Jones is going to get his head shaved. Valiant doesn't even sit up Jones. He actually shaves him while he's lying down. Uh, Manny Fernandez somehow gets out of the cage and hits the ring. Rude hits the ring. They both beat down Valiant, um, and it's a pretty brutal beat down of Valiant. Baron and Wahoo back out, um, but Valiant is 
out cold, and he looks legit dead. Yeah, like, what did you win in this feud? So, what did Jimmy Valiant win in this feud? Wahoo sits him up, and, uh, but Valiant is pretty much just out of it. Um, now, now, Chad, given that uh, this is your favourite guy, tell us what you think. Um, I, I mean, I thought that the uh, match, I, I agree with Brian that it is silly when the manager or whoever's going in the cage always acts like they had no idea what was going on. Unfortunately, it does get a big pop here when Manny finally got, I guess, uh, tricked into getting into the little cage. They got a pretty big pop. The work here was, uh, you know, not great, but I thought I thought it was fine. I thought I think Jimmy's definitely looking older at this time. He's definitely looking on the way down. And to me, this match should have been, you know, the final hoorah for him. Uh, you know, he should have beat Paul Jones in essentially the same fashion he did. He should have shaved the head. Uh, we could have had a little thing where Manny tries to save him and Jimmy clears house and then, you know, he, he shaves Paul's head, sort of parades around with his hair. Um, I'm kind of picturing like a Roddy Piper, Adrian Adonis, WrestleMania 3 type scene. Yeah. Where, you know, he parades around with his hair, goes to the back, and then that's, that's pretty much it of Jimmy as far as being in any... Uh, you know, angle of consequence or any big time angle. You know, he can work some comedy matches or some undercard stuff. But this would have been it. I thought it was absolutely asinine for him to get beat up at the end of the, you know, at the end of the match because again, there's there's no more stakes, no higher stakes you can have uh, besides this. You know, people have gotten their heads shaved. This feud's been way drawn out now, so they should just gave Jimmy his, you know, last shining moment and been done with it. So that that was probably the most frustrating thing to me overall in this show. Uh, besides one more event that I'll talk about later. Would you would you guys agree that where um, Crockett is, gen- you know, where Crockett as a territory was generally decent at booking heels, when it came to booking baby faces and blow offs and things. They just didn't really know what they were doing because, like the end of this, like ideally, okay, you have a scene where um, Paul Jones wakes up and he looks befuddled and he's standing in the ring on his own and he doesn't know what's going on and he looks in the mirror and he sees like where was that scene? You know, yeah, exactly, exactly. But we don't, we didn't even get to see really Jones wake up or there was no kind of payoff here. Very strange. Very strange. Um, I mean, I, I think part of that, what you're talking about, may, you know, in the rare occasions where the baby face did get the perfect kind of blow-off finish, for instance, the Magnum Tully Starcade 85, you know, I yeah. quit match. That sort of makes that, you know, stand out even more fondly. I mean, that was a great finish, but in the context of everything else we've seen, that just, you know, is magnified. Mm, yeah, well said. I always wonder, too, if, uh, you know, Paul Jones is sitting at home sometimes and just inadvertently cuts a Jimmy Valiant promo <laughs> after doing it for so many years. <laughs> no, but, like, I'm, I'm just thinking, like, this should have been a much bigger deal than, for example, okay, I'm just off the top of my head, Brutus Beefcake, when he, um, when he just cuts a little bit of Jimmy Hart's hair. He doesn't even shave his head. He just cuts a little bit of his of his ponytail off. And that 
was just a massive deal. Jimmy Hart sold it like, you know, it was the biggest, you know, the worst thing ever. Um, crowd was going wild. Like, why couldn't we have had a moment like that? Um, se- seems odd. Now, and this is coming from a heel fan. Like, I hate, I hate it when the baby faces get their big uh, payoff, but kind of seeing things work this way where they don't happen, structurally it needs to happen, I think. You know, it's almost like a the full stop that you need, the period. Um, yeah. So, so, Brian, does this feud actually continue from here, or is this it now for these guys? I, I mean, Paul Jones transitions to his, his tag team, becomes the focus of him, but throughout early 87, they're still mouthing off at each other. I mean, Jimmy Vine starts calling Paul Jones a bald-headed geek. <laughs> and Paul Jones wears a hat the whole time, so you never really see him bald. And they're still mouthing off to each other back and forth. But I, this is it in terms of, you know, big showdowns. But uh, I swear to God, they hate each other today. But uh, I'm really surprised they don't have, like, a, you know, like WWE doesn't have a throwback night and Valiant and Paul Jones headline it. It just bothers me. This went on way too long. And like I said, uh, Jimmy Valiant got nothing in the end of this. Right, and how long does he hang around for now, Valiant? Um, uh, he, uh, he, I know he's in the, the Crockett Cup in April. He's a little bit, I want to say mid-87. He's maybe towards the fall, and then he's gone. Right. So Finally. Still some time for him. Yes, so. nothing nothing really uh, of... He might have a little bit of television time, you know, so a couple of interviews, some, some shucking and jiving, uh, stuff like that, but he's never really featured in any big role, I don't think, again, after this. Chad, we're going to have to give him a big send-off. Maybe we'll do a five-minute retrospective where you can tell us all about your favorite about Jimmy Valiant memories. <laughs> Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody.